Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This is a special edition of the podcast recorded live at an event organised by JW3, the Jewish Community Centre in London, and the Genesis Philanthropy Group. And it's a conversation between me and one of the world's leading human rights jurists, Albie Sachs. Not just a judge of the South African Constitutional Court, but also a freedom fighter who lost his arm in a car bomb explosion because of his support for the fight against apartheid. It's an extraordinary conversation and I really hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much to the Genesis Philanthropy Group for allowing me to repost it. The Better Human Podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. Studying at Goldsmiths means you'll gain problem-solving, debating and advocacy skills through a range of experiential learning, extracurricular and professional development activities, including participation in the Refugee Law Clinic at the University of London and Goldsmiths Law and policy clinics that cover areas as diverse as financial wrongdoing, immigration and counter-terrorism. If you want to support the Better Human Podcast and help make it sustainable, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com where you can also find show notes. Good evening. Thank you so much, Rachel, for the kind introduction and to JW3 and the Genesis Philanthropy Group for organising this event this evening, which I have been looking forward to from the moment that I was asked to do it. And I really am honoured to be doing it. So I'm truly honoured this evening to be in conversation with Albie Sachs. or Albie, he's asked me to refer to him. Albie is a freedom fighter, a lawyer, and a former justice of the Constitutional Court of South Africa, one of the most important living human rights jurists, whose decisions are cited in human rights um, judgments across the world. Being a human rights lawyer in the UK, you might risk losing in court, maybe being criticized in the press. We don't generally face physical danger or threats to our lives. But because of his opposition to apartheid, as a young lawyer, Albie was imprisoned twice for months at a time in solitary confinement. And then in 1988, he was almost killed in a bomb in a car bomb attack in Mozambique organized by the South African government, and he lost his arm. So I'm truly delighted and honored to introduce Albie Sachs. Hi, Adam. Hi, Albie. I can't see the audience, but from the description, I think you're all over the world, uh, and and I'm absolutely delighted to have this chance. Uh, I know Dowdy Street Chambers, and and I think, uh, Adam, you've got a wonderful resume uh, as, as a young civil rights activist lawyer. So I'm looking forward to our engagement very much. Thank you. I wanted to start, um, Albie, I guess in the middle, um, with that car bomb attack in 1988. And in preparation for this evening, I read um, your Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter book, which describes your, your long recovery from that, um, from that terrible event. Um, and one of the things that struck me was the it, it surprised me how how physical the book was, how you spoke, you spoke so much almost as if you were, um, rec- we were recovering with you in the book. And it's, it's an amazing book, actually, um, it, it, you know, from, from a human perspective. But what, what struck me when considering it in the context of what had come before and what came after, um, it really did, dem- it really was a pivot point in your life, 1988, it seems, between that part of your life when you were a freedom fighter, when you were in exile um, because of your 
um, because of your opposition to the South African government. And then shortly after returning to South Africa and, and working on the constitution and becoming a Supreme Court justice. Um, do you think it's, is it fair to say that that was a pivot point and did it, do you think it changed you in a, in a way which allowed you to take on the next stage in your life? It, it was absolutely pivotal and, and in utterly surprising ways. Uh, the bomb itself wasn't all that much of a surprise. Uh, Ruth first, who'd also been in Mozambique, having come there from England, uh, having been in exile, she taught the University of Durham. She went to Mozambique, when Mozambique became independent. She was killed by a letter bomb. So that threat of a bomb was there all the time. Uh, so that wasn't a surprise. Uh, let me just describe it a little bit to you, because uh, it was April the 7th, which is the day of the Mozambican woman, a public holiday, and I'm going to the beach in the morning, meetings in the afternoon, and boom! Suddenly, terrible darkness, and I know something awful is happening to me, and I don't know quite what it is, and then in the darkness, I hear a voice saying, Albi, this is Eva Corrido, you're in Maputo Central Hospital, your arm is in lamentable condition. You must face the future with courage. And I said into the darkness, what happened? And I heard a woman's voice saying, it was a car bomb. I fainted back into the darkness with a sense of joy. I knew I was safe. I kind of half thought that I was being kidnapped to be thrown into prison in neighboring South Africa. And that sense of joy somehow seeped into me when I found myself lying on my back, feeling very, very light, and I can't see anything. And I told myself a joke, uh, a Jewish joke about Tommy Cohen, and when I tell the story, I always say, you like me as a Jew? It's an old joke. He falls off a bus and he does what appears to be the sign of the cross, and somebody says, Heidi, I didn't know you were Catholic. What do you mean Catholic? Spectacles, testicles, wallet and watch. Uh, I don't think everybody tells themselves a joke after being blown up, but somehow to me that was very symptomatic of, of an urge for survival, and for some reason I started with testicles, and Everything seemed to be in place, and and uh, the story went round the ANC camps afterwards. And the first thing Mohammed Albi did was reach for reports. Now I've tried to be matcha all my life without success. I had my fifteen minutes of matcha fame. Uh, I feel now wallet, heart seems to be okay. Spectacles, my head. There's a crater. My brain's damaged, I'm in big trouble. And then my arm slides down, my good left arm. I've lost the bottom of my right arm. I've only lost an arm. And I had a sense of joy. It's a moment you're waiting for. You're a freedom fighter. Will they come for me? Will they come for me today? Will I be brave? Will I get through the night? And they'd come for me, they'd try to kill me, and I'd survive. And I had a total, utter conviction that 
as I got better, my country would get better. That was 1988. And I got better and I went back two years later to South Africa and we started working on a new constitution. And somehow that bomb lost. I was like born again. I had to learn to stand, to tie a shoelace, to write with my left. Look, mommy, I can write with my left. But somehow that bomb blew away all the heavy misery and pain I brought with me when I went into exile in England after the solitary confinement, the sleep deprivation, torture, water being poured over my head, eyes being prized open. It's all blown away. I was getting better, my country would get better. It was pivotal in, in, in that sense. And, and you know, since I'm speaking to an audience that um, is, is largely Jewish, uh, there was a sequel, an interesting sequel, when I came to write the Salt Bench of Freedom Fighter. Some months later, I'm now out of hospital, I'm recovering, and I get a message from Oliver Tambor, the president of the ANC, that he's asked two members of his National Executive Committee to come and see how I'm getting on. And one of them who comes is name is John Cuddy Meng. He'd seen me growing up and he'd lost his son in a bomb blast. And the other was Jacob Zuma, who's been in the news very, very much recently, former president of South Africa, facing imprisonment right now uh, because of his defiance of, of a court order against him. At that stage, he was a freedom fighter in exile like I was. And they want to know the story. How am I getting on so they can report to the president? And I tell them that joke. And I want to get John and Karimeng with his long face to laugh, and I can't. And Zuma is roaring with laughter. And when it comes to the final testicle speaker, what of what, he almost falls off the chair. And I say to myself at that time, what's happening here is, is so special. He has a Zulu speaker's sense of humor. African delight in storytelling. You savor every little bit. You don't rush to the climax of the story. And I'm telling this Jewish joke. And that's how we're going to get the new South Africa. You come in as you are. You bring your culture, your personality in, and you share it with everybody. Sadly for him, having become president, he's now in a difficult position. Happily for me, at any rate, uh, my life now is very, very strong. I had wonderful years on the court, uh, and, and I'm proud of my country, what it's achieved, uh, and hoping that we can deal with the corruption and the violence and all the problems that are really facing us. Can you, can you tell us about the day you met Henry? Yes, uh, Henry. So now I'm not a junior judge, a young judge, not even young. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a recent judge uh, on the Constitutional Court, the top court in our country. And the telephone rings and the voice says, uh, reception here, there's a man called Henry who says he has an appointment to meet you. And I say, uh, send him to the security gate. And my heart's going boom, 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 boom. Henry phoned me to say, is Henry van der Westhuizen? And he was the person who had organized the placing of the bomb in my car. And he's now going to South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but he'd like to see me before he goes to the commission. Am I willing to see him? And I said, yes. 
And I go to the security gate, I open, and I see he's younger than me, he's tall and thin like I am. He's looking at me, I'm looking at him. And I'm thinking, so this is the man who tried to kill me, and he's looking at me, so this is the man I tried to kill. We hadn't met before. We hadn't fought over love, job, passion, or anything, but he was on that side, I was on this side. In the event, we walked to my chambers, and he's fighting like a soldier, and I used my best judge's ambulation to try and slow him down. And we get into my chambers, and we talk, we talk, we talk, we talk. He tells me how good he was at school, and, and, and how good he was at university, and he went into the army, and he's almost bragging about it. He went high up in the army, high up. He became a senior person in the head squad. So I've got to pat him on the back for that. In any event, he tells me about the planning of the bomb, uh, and that they had delayed the explosion for various reasons. Uh, he was taken off the case. Afterwards, I was blown up. He knew it was a bomb that he placed. In the end, I said, Henry, I have to get on with my work. He stood up. I said, normally, when I say goodbye to someone, I shake their hand. I can't shake your hand. But go to the Truth Commission, tell them what you know, and maybe one day, maybe one day we'll meet. I forgot about him. The end of the year, several months later, I'm at a party with a friend. The music is loud. We work very hard as judges. I want to relax, and I hear a voice saying, Albie, and I took my mind. Albie, it's Henry. I can't believe it. It turned out the organizers of the party were filmmakers uh, who were making a film about one of the only two soldiers who went to the Truth Commission. Anyway, I'm surprised to see him. We get into a corner uh, to get away from the sound of the music, and he said, I went to the Truth Commission and I spoke to Bobby and Sue and Farouk and I told them everything I know and, and, and you said that one day and I said, Henry, I've only got your face to tell me what you're saying is the truth. I put out my hand and I shook his hand. I almost fainted. He went away beaming. But I heard afterwards that he suddenly left the party went home and he cried for two weeks. I don't know if it's true. I want to believe it's true. I'm not even checking up. I'd rather have that hope that it's true. It's more important that one rascal cries and feels the enormity of what he'd been involved with than that a rascal is thrown into jail. So he's not my friend. I won't invite him to have a drink with me or to go to a movie. But if I'm in a bus and he sits down next to me, I say, Henry, how are you getting on? Because somehow he's like entered the new South Africa. He's taken that little step. And it's been liberating for me as well. Instead of the enemy being that dark, void out there, abstract, it's a person, a person like me who's moving on. And, and in that sense, the Truth Commission helped to liberate me from a kind of vague background dread by giving a personality to the person who tried to kill me and bringing us in connection with each other in, in a non-abrasive way. You make it sound so natural that you meet the person who tried to kill you um, and, and you have this sort of humane dialogue with them. But I think for a lot of people, 
they would they would expect the opposite or they would they would expect the opposite of themselves um and you talk about the truth and reconciliation commission um would it be fair to say that you um that there were lots of people involved with setting that up but you were involved in a very particular aspect of it which was the amnesty aspect and which seems to me as a lawyer to be an extraordinary and very different way of of conceptualizing justice the idea that if you go and tell the truth you will receive an amnesty from criminal charges can you just talk about the the thinking behind that because it's very different to what we see um in in most justice systems yes you know it wasn't theorized it wasn't abstract philosophical discussions uh, it was responding to to the needs of our country uh, to get to grips with the terrible things that had happened but find mechanisms of restorative justice uh, justice the way i'd grown up in our legal system in south africa heavily derived from common law in england in, in number of respects with the terrible apartheid elements in it uh, justice was seen as 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 punitive uh, retributive uh, calling people to account through punishment or making them pay money and even through the death penalty we wanted to create another kind of justice restorative justice justice that would bring people closer together in a sense henry was a victim of the apartheid system in a sense because he'd been brought up to believe in the things that he was believing in he'd been trained to do all that uh, and he wasn't in a sense more responsible than the people who'd voted for the government that had passed those laws uh, the the manufacturers who provided the instruments that were used to keep us locked up uh, you know where was the responsibility it was a deep structural responsibility that to change our society that to get the votes for everybody we have a new constitution that granted rights to everybody this is transformative and simply going for particular individuals particularly one who had the courage to come forward and say i did wrong to my mind was much more meaningful and and there was a trigger for me uh, sometimes uh, it was gandhi who spoke about experiential truth it's not logical philosophical truth or observational truth experiential truth that you derive from experience i'm lying in my hospital bed at the london hospital i'm recovering and i get an envelope those of us who are older remember envelopes the stabs on and you would lick them and i'm opening with my one hand and it says don't worry comrade lb we will avenge you signed comrade bobby and i think avenge me we can cut off the arms we can blind in one eye is that the country we are fighting for if we get democracy if we get the rule of law if we get freedom that will be my soft vengeance roses and lilies will grow out of my arm and you can say that's romantic it is romantic and it's fantastic and it's elevating Uh, and and it's restorative for me it gives meaning sending him to jail doesn't give meaning to my arm it's punishing him making him feel pain that's not going to help me but to understand why i lost my arm is part of a voluntary endeavor to bring about transformation and change and to see the fruits of that 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 would be wonderful so it is with that kind of philosophy 
I remember uh, Adam uh, just when Mandela had been released, I'm interviewed by Anthony Lewis, the New York Times, and he said, "Okay, Albi, you're going back to South Africa now, and this is your chance to to send to jail the people who've blown you up." And I said, "I don't know, Tony." I always thought there was something wrong with me, even when I was in jail. And I should have been hating the gods. I should have been imagining as they went away after having delivered the plate of food and the fork that I had a, a knife that I was stabbing them in the back with. And I didn't. I didn't. I felt I was an inadequate revolutionary. That, that there was a failure, there was a deficit. He said, Albie, you can relax. I've just spoken to Nelson Mandela. He said more or less the same thing. We want transformation and change. I spoke to Walter Sisulu, Robin and Becky. So I was part of a culture. It's not just a personal thing. Our vision was to transform our country, to get the cruelty out, to end capital punishment, to end the violence, to end the division of people, to, to find, connect up with, with our humanity. Uh, the people in the regime who'd done all these terrible things, they wanted a blanket amnesty. Just wipe the slate clean, and we refused. You can't have a blanket amnesty. Then there's no accountability. But accountability can take the form of you come forward and you acknowledge what you did. They weren't asking for forgiveness. I didn't say, I'll forgive you, Henry. It's not for me to forgive. I think of all the other people who did violence to you. But it's for him to move forward and take advantage of the new generosity, if you like, of the oppressed people in Parliament, adopting the, the uh, epilogue to our constitution that spoke about the need to deal with the untold suffering and injustice of the past, but not in a spirit of vengeance and retaliation, but in a spirit of conciliation, reconciliation, and Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is such a powerful African concept of human interdependence. I can't separate my humanity from acknowledging your humanity. I don't diminish my freedom by acknowledging your freedom. I don't reduce my person, personal significance by pushing away you as a competitor, but through sharing, through sharing, through sharing, through sharing, uh, through Ubuntu. Uh, and it was that magnanimity you like, not just the one great leader by Nelson Mandela, but something deep, especially among poor people, that kept us together in the hard struggle days. It's now being expressed in the constitutional format and in law. And these amazing uh, experiences, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu traveling around the country, hearing the stories of those who suffered, and another group of the Truth Commission, hearing the people coming forward and acknowledging what they did. There's no scope for denialism in South Africa because the killers, the torturers themselves have come forward and told the story. And somebody, I think, put it very, very beautifully, an American political scientist, that converted knowledge into acknowledgement. We knew these things were happening, that people being assassinated, tortured to death. That's statistical. Acknowledgement is imbibing it, taking it into your worldview. Where was I? What was I doing at the time? 
how could I do these things? How can we prevent these things from happening again? Which is enormously uh, important for our country. Today, there are still cases of people who did go to the Truth Commission, who weren't prosecuted, who should have been prosecuted. This is now 30 years later, uh, people are angry. Uh, and until we have full equality in our country and equal life chances, there will always be a sense of resentment that some of these uh, scoundrels and killers and torturers got off spot free. But overall, it is a tremendous process. Uh, and we've had the, the, if you like, the kind of, of, of joy and pleasure of sharing our experiences in, in Sri Lanka, in Colombia, in Northern Ireland, of finding ways and means of transcending the conflict and the pains of the past, not through simple classical punishment or total amnesty, but through this process of engaging people, telling the truth, let the truth come out, and then moving on. You speak um, about the values um, un underlying that, and you've spoken about this, the African values. Um, can you talk a bit about your upbringing and, 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 and particularly your parents and your Jewish background and how that influenced in your, in, in your reading of your own life? How did that influence what happened later and, what, and the path your life took? Yes, it, it, came, it came... How did it come? Well, my father was Sorry Sachs and my mother was Rachel Ginsburg. So you'll guess that they were of Lithuanian origin uh, my mom had come age six months as a baby, so she'd grown up in South Africa. My dad was about six. And they were fleeing from the pogroms in Lithuania. And I'd hear stories from one of my uncles about uh, every Easter, the Cossacks, for some reason, would ride up to the shtetls uh, and, and say, uh, the Jews killed Christ, we're going to kill the Jews. And they would hide in the forests and hide in the basements. So there's a sense of injustice that they brought with them. And, and many of the people who came, Yiddish-speaking, uh, a burning desire for freedom, uh, and then he became socialist. And, and my mom and dad met in the Young Communist League. Uh, when I was growing up, they separated afterwards. My dad was expelled from the Communist Party for what was called right-wing deviationism. My mom stayed on, uh, and she would say to me, tidy up, tidy up, Uncle Moses is coming. And Uncle Moses wasn't Moses uh, Khan or Moses Levine. It was Moses Kutani, a black African man who was the general secretary of the Communist Party. So I grew up in a home where my mother, a white woman, was the typist for a black man, whom she had enormous love and respect for. And that was unusual in all white homes, including Jewish homes in South Africa. At the same time, with their political beliefs, came a strong secularism. They rebelled against the religion of their parents. So I grew up in a very, very secular home. So the Jewishness didn't come to me through faith, through the Torah, or references to the Talmud, or through the rabbi, at all. Very, very secular. But it came through to me in that sense, I suppose, of being the other and being a non-religious Jew. I was the other of the other. 
uh, and that, in a way, made me see conscience as number one. The most important element of a human being is conscience, your true beliefs. And if you don't believe in God, you can't pretend to believe in God just to keep in with the others. That would be disrespectful to me and to God if God exists. That's quite a tough thing for a young kid to adopt a position. And yet it's given me a huge respect and tolerance for faith. Completely different from mine. Worldview is completely different from mine. That's the number one thing for any human being. That, that would be quite central. Uh, strangely enough, I only came to read, it wasn't even the Torah, it was called the Old Testament. When I was locked up in solitary confinement, the only book I had. And I read it through, looking for consolation and hope. And terrible day, 24 hours with nothing to do. And I would restrict myself to two and a half pages a day to keep it going for as long as possible. And so much of it I found was smiting and smiting and smiting and being smitten. And I wasn't getting any consolation. Then I come to the era of, of Solomon and the beautiful Psalms and the Song of Solomon, wonderful reaching out to the nations and then smiting and smiting and then the prophets. And that was very powerful for me, Isaiah, especially Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. And the turning swords into plowshares and, 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 and spears into pruning hooks and making war no more. That reached me. Uh, and, and kind of, I've had a very strong Jewish month. I don't know if it's connected with COVID, uh, Passover, I don't know. Uh, so I'm questioned a lot. Uh, and, and I say almost rather glibly, what connects me with 3,000 years of Jewish history is Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein. These crazies with a millenarian worldview linking up with the prophets, it's something that came like, if you like, with my mother's milk, uh, that sense of resisting injustice and persecution. But I always add, and my Auntie Rosie's tailor that we got at Rosh Hashanah, because uh, every uh, Rosh Hashanah and, and, and Pesach we would go to Uncle Eli and Auntie, uh, Auntie Rosie's place, uh, all the Jewish cousins and uncles and aunties and so on. And I loved that. It wasn't religious, but it was a sense of family, of connection. Uh, and, and to this day, uh, there's something in terms of the cuisine. So it's maybe the simplest of tastes and the highest of ideals that connect me uh, to the Jewish community and, and the Jewishness, as long as there's anti-Semitism in the world. I am a very, very proud Jew. And sadly, anti-Semitism is likely to be around. Sadly, 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 for the long time. I, I, I certainly identify with that from my background. I, I was very involved growing up with um, Habonim, the youth movement, the socialist youth movement. So my um, my sort of some of my central experiences involved Karl Marx and the you know that the fierce secular Judaism um, sort of fierce identity uh, Jewish identity without the without God I guess um, but w one thing that struck me and and you feel free to to shoot this down um, it, you 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 and two sort of defining values for you seem to be well first of all human dignity which is 
I, I think you said on Desert Island Discs, it's one of the, the two human rights principles, along with proportionality, that you'd take with to a desert island. Um, but also, you know, turning the other cheek um, seems to be, you know, far more than an eye for an eye, seems to be something which is, is at the centre of, of who you are as a person and as a lawyer and as a jurist. And I wonder whether, you know, that seems to me that there's a synthesis there between Jewish values and, and Christian values, or is that, am I being unfair? And not at all, not at all. And, and, and I'm sure if you look at Islam, uh, you'll find very, very similar tenets are there and, and uh, Hinduism and, and uh, traditional African beliefs. Uh, one can find these profoundly humane concepts, sometimes dressed up, in terms of the deity of a universal spirit, uh, sometimes just a kind of an ethical core that, that, that's very, very powerful. Yeah, when Oliver Tambo, who, who was about to become a minister in the Anglican Church in, in 1956 December, he's going to marry Adelaide uh, and become an Anglican minister. Uh, then the treason trial arrest took place, he's thrown into jail, uh, into the prison where we built our constitutional court now. So he said Providence had some other ideas for him. He was a deeply religious person. And I remember him calling me in one day uh, in Lusaka. I was in, in the Putu. Uh, I happened to be in Lusaka. Uh, and he said, he's going to speak to the World Conference on Religion. Can I help him prepare his speech? And he didn't go to the religious desk of the ANC. They would have said, you know, we know this Methodist and we that Catholic. He came to me, secular Albi, uh, because he felt I had something what he would call the Holy Spirit. And we did connect up. He, putting it in a religious framework, if you like, ideologically, I in my secular humanist framework, but they were the same core values. Uh, and somehow it even connected us more strongly because we were so dissimilar. And yet finding uh, that that connectedness purely at the basis of profoundly important beliefs for which both of us were literally prepared to give our lives. How did you get involved in the ANC and the, and the, and the fight against apartheid? Well, I told you about growing up in, in, in a family where my mom, and by the way, even my name, you know, I didn't stand a chance, Albert. I was named after Albert and Zula who was a communist, who'd been a trade unionist, who died shortly before I was born. See, before I was born, uh, the name uh, somehow uh, was, was connected. Uh, ironically, very anti-monitor's family, he would have been named after Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's consort. That's the dialectic of history uh, that, that I'm named after a communist who was named after uh, the prince. In any event, um, but I hated my parents assuming that I would automatically follow in their footsteps. And all the way through school, I took part in debates. I was editor of the literary of the school magazine. Uh, I was a great mountain climber. I played cricket right up till my beginning of my second year at university. I didn't want them to feel I'm automatically going to follow their ideals. And then I met a young crowd who had those ideals. And I was ready. I was ready. And, 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 and um, in fact, it was a poetry, uh, a poetry evening that made that connection for me. 
an Afrikaans South African poet called Ace Krieger from the Afrikaner community, a rebel who'd been in Spain towards the end of the Civil War. And my mother told me, uh, Ace Krieger is going to give some lectures. You should go. And I went. And he spoke about Federico Lorca, Spanish poet. I didn't even know they had poets in Spain. They had bullfights. And he told stories about the end of the Civil War, the fascists taking over, Dorca being assassinated or being killed by a fighting squad at five in the afternoon and reciting the poem, and he walked up and down on the stage and it was so dramatic and he's speaking a bit of Spanish and a little bit of French and Afrikaans and English, lots of English. And it did something for me. It connected up that inwardness, the longings, the soulfulness that I had I got through poetry, through reading, through novels, with the great public events of the world. So poetry wasn't just that private little thing of nursing your secret soul. Poetry now became a link with the passions of the world outside. And then next it was Papa Daruda and uh, Nicholas Kian, a Cuban poet. And I was ready, and a few months later I was volunteering to go to jail in the Defiance and Just Force campaign. People ask me afterwards, Albie, why did you bring culture into politics? Because I wrote a lot on culture and against that kind of rather rigid, stultified, uh, instrumentalist view of art and culture towards a much more nuanced, dynamic, a profound culture as who you are, not something you bring in and leave out, but something part of your personality and nature. In any event, why did you bring culture into politics and the other way around? So that poetry session that propelled me into politics and everything followed from that. I want to um, move move forward again. Um, and I, I can't, I, I want to leave a little bit of time to speak about um, your time on the constitutional courts. But I mean, there can't be many judges um, in in modern history who have played a role in writing the constitution that they then get to enforce as a judge. What was that like building from scratch a, a, a constitution which has become a, a human rights um, you know, example of, of human rights and particularly social rights through the world? You know, Adam, that was my soft vengeance. It was amazing. I feel so super privileged that you know, I had the privilege of my white skin. It was privilege put on me, but it meant I could dream of doing anything. A bigger privilege of being part of the freedom movement. Fantastic. Then the privilege of a lawyer helping to write your country's constitution. Then sitting on the court, and then even the privilege of helping with the design of a magnificent building that we're in. Anyway, now writing the constitution, it took us years. It was tough. We had breakdowns. And it was so, so dramatic, so intense. And we always worked as teams and teams and teams and teams. Uh, and, 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 you know, it was also wonderful. We spent decades pulling down, denouncing anti-apartheid. Down with, down with, down with, away with, release Nelson Mandela, free Nelson Mandela. That was great. Now we had a chance to build, to heal. Some of the comrades never took to it. They're again, they're against. 
and they play an important role. They were cross with us afterwards for not doing more in the constitution and afterwards. But some of us were aching to heal, to build. A whole different side of ourselves was able to express itself. It was fantastic for me as a lawyer. You had to find a new language. Uh, instead of this tight, what I would call rather positivistic, laconic English approach to constitutions, say the minimum, uh, deal with the structures, don't waste words. Words were values. Words were a bit of rights. Words were foundational principles. Words were the preamble. The soul had to come before the body, uh, before the structures, and we created a constitution that is deeply value-laden, uh, that is rooted in our history. It's rooted in pain and hope. Uh, I once wrote that all constitutions represent uh, the aim for the ideal, for perfection, and guarding against corruption, the wickedness, the balance between the two. We had to build all that in. So it was thrilling activity, intellectually, emotionally, in every possible way. And then you, you were appointed at the, one of the first justices of the constitutional courts. And I, I, I've read that you, you say that the, 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 the work of the court in those early years was, very, was a very sort of creative um, time because you were, um, you were interpreting for the first time a new constitution. So you had to do things, everything you were doing was for the first time. Um, what, what of the judgments made you cry? Can you talk about that? I can tell you about a judgment uh, that kept me up all night as the hardly speakers of capital punishment, just the profundity of it. Uh, a judgment where I nearly resigned from the court. Uh, it, it dealt with uh, eviction of homeless people who put up their shacks on land uh, in an area called Port Elizabeth, uh, vacant land next to a very upmarket white suburb. And they'd been there for five, ten years. And now the owners of the homes nearby went to the council and said, get them out. They're sitting on our property. And the council, a black council, went to court, had them evicted. Case came up to the Supreme Court of Appeal and found a very technical basis for overturning the eviction. And that was appealed to the Constitutional Court. And Arthur Chaskerson asked me to write the judgment, the daily judgment for the court. And I said, oh no, I can't, I can't, I can't. I sworn to uphold the law without fear, favor, or prejudice. And you can't come and put up your shacks on somebody else's land. It's unfair, it's unfortunate, but you can't do it. It's unlawful. And I've sworn an oath. I, as the judge, have to uphold the eviction. And I, as Albi, I can't. I can't. They're desperately poor people. This is the only home they've got. The whites have got beautiful homes nearby. They're not even using the land. And the black people have been dispossessed of their land. By law, 90% of the land is reserved for whites only. By law, over decades. I can't do it. And if I can't fulfill my oath, I have to leave the bench. And fortunately for me, I was able to convert a moral crisis into a legal tension. Because the same constitution that gives indirect protection of property rights 
also gives a right of access to adequate housing. The two collide. And when the two collide, then you need a form of mediation to resolve the collision between these two principles, protection of property uh, and the right to a home. And there hadn't been any mediation. And out of that, I just refer to mediation. In a later case, my colleague, Zakia Cook said, mediation is not enough. We need meaningful engagement between the parties. And that's become a very important part of our law, a very rich and creative part of our law, a bit like restorative justice, bringing the parties and you report. It's not just saying go and settle the case. You engage. If the council wants them off that property, then the council must ensure that they get alternative accommodation somewhere. And maybe the landowners can put up some money to find alternative accommodation. And you can get a fairer result of a very inequitable situation. So I didn't design. Uh, maybe that's one of the cases I remember. Can you tell us about, there's a case involving H treatment for HIV, um, which is, I, I think was the first case that I came across in an English um, case that I was involved in. I was involved in a, a case about um, asylum seekers being given treatment for dialysis, and that and, and that case was was cited, and I read it. Um, but can can you talk about that and how that um, impacted on you? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, possibly the most important case we decided in my fifteen years on the court was the treatment action campaign case. It was when the pandemic of HIV was hitting our country hard, and and and. Tens, hundreds of thousands of people were dying. It's like we've got our democracy, we've got our freedom, and now we're being destroyed by, by, by this disease. And now antiretrovirals come onto the scene. And, and there happened to be a lot of denialism, HIV denialism, in very high places, right up to the president in, in our country. And the Ministry of Health was not rolling out the vaccines, uh, the antiretrovirals, sorry. Uh, and it was simply limited to two test sites in each of the nine provinces. On the ground, the treatment action campaign, literally tens and tens of scores, hundreds of thousands of people living with HIV organized themselves. It's an extraordinary example of civil society mobilizing. They had great journalists telling their stories and excellent lawyers relying on our constitution and the progressive realization of social economic rights. And the, I mean, let me tell you the story. As we about to go into the court to hear the decision being given by Arthur Jasperson, my colleague Sandeep Ngorba says, Albie, would you like my handkerchief? Uh, and I said, no, no, I'm okay. And the background to that was a few months earlier, he'd given a decision about Somebody wanted a job as an airline steward uh, on South African Airways. He passed all the tests with flying colors, but he was HIV positive. So Airways said, we'll employ you on the ground. He says, no, I want to pour coffee. Don't discriminate against me. And they refused. The case came up to us. And Sandiri wrote an exquisite judgment about the importance of work. And if our publicly owned airline gives in to prejudice, then our duty is to combat that prejudice. The Constitution doesn't allow people not to be employed 
simply because they're HIV positive. They're not going to transmit the disease by pouring the coffee. Exclusive judgment. And the court at that stage had people sitting in it with T-shirts saying HIV positive men, women, young, old, black, brown. It was like the nation. And he gave that decision. He went out and he was cheering. And I started crying. I was crying not just because of the impact of the pandemic. I was trying to feel I'm a judge. I'm part of this project. We have rights that are so meaningful in our country. It's just an overwhelmingly marvelous feeling. So now we're about to go back into court and treatment action campaign case on giving nevirapine to women about to give birth, living with the HIV. Nevirapine would cut the transmission then by 50%, now by 95%. And Sandiri offers me his handkerchief. He knows what the results would be. I said, now I'm okay today. We go in, we sit down. Arthur reads out the decision. And the decision tells, declares that the government is obliged to provide the vaccine, the, the antiretroviral. Uh, as in terms of the rights of the people, in terms of the health sections, provisions in our constitution, the rights of the child, the rights of women and mothers, and, and so on. Dead silence. Same people sitting with the HIV positive t-shirts on. We go outside, the cheering comes again, and I cried again. And I wrote about that because I wanted students and other judges and lawyers and people to know that judges can cry. Maybe cowboys don't cry, but judges cry. They cry, we're human beings. And it wasn't crying on the bench, which could be embarrassing to everybody, but it was that sense of emotion that was just so profound, of, of elation in terms of what the, what the law is capable of doing. The Better Human Podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month, that's just over £2, via our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Your book, The, the Strange Al Alchemy of Life and Law, um, really gets to the heart of the, the judicial task, which from, the, from the, the, the lower lawyer perspective, who only, I'm ever, only ever front, in front of judges rather than being a judge, um, it really shows, I mean, we, we, you can't, you, we all know that judges are humans like everybody else, but there's some inhuman aspect to being a judge, I think. There's this idea that you have to be objective um, as if you, you have to exclude your, your underlying humanity and become a sort of almost godlike figure. I think you described it as, as judgments um, telling lies about themselves. Do you think being a judge is he, you know, being a good judge is possible for someone who's been so involved in politics, even as a lawyer? Uh, absolutely. I was part of a generation of, of, of people who'd fought for freedom in South Africa. Some lawyers 
like Oliver Tambo Nelson Mandela. Mandela was in jail 27 years. Tambo gave his life to the struggle. Uh, Joe Slovo uh, became a, a brilliant advocate. Uh, you knew who the best advocates were when the police were in trouble. They would try and get him to defend them. Uh, he became a military commander and, and one of the leaders of, of a revolutionary struggle to bring about change in South Africa. Uh, I was very involved in the military combat, uh, but very heavily involved in the Constitutional Committee of the ANC and working on envisaging a new constitution. You didn't want race and race quotas and power sharing between races in South Africa. We wanted a united, non-racial, and afterwards we said non-sexist South Africa with rights protected through a Bill of Rights. And that became part of our struggle. So it wasn't like it's war, 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 suddenly it's peace, peace, peace. Already during the war, we are aiming at peace and getting conditions for peace and creating the foundations in exile of what became our final constitution. We demanded that we don't negotiate our new constitution. We don't have a Lancaster House. The constitution can only be negotiated by the people of South Africa through the democratically elected representative, the Constituent Assembly. And then we ended up with a two-stage process of constitution making, where we negotiated the process to get the constitution making assembly in terms of certain principles agreed to in advance that would guarantee non-oppression in the new society, a separation of powers, fundamental rights, multi-party democracy, that we agreed to in advance. And then the new parliament, consisting of people who in the great majority had been oppressed under apartheid, had been in the struggle, had been in resistance, in exile, in the underground, in prison, and so on. They wrote the new constitution. And that's why it's got that strong spirit of freedom. You capture that moment when liberation comes to consolidate. It's the first constitution in the world to include sexual orientation as a prohibited ground of discrimination. The first constitution in the world to have environmental rights this is in 1996 as a constitutional principle. The first constitution in the world to make gender-based violence a constitutional issue. No violence from the state or from private sources. Because we had a strong women's movement, well represented in parliament, insisting on all these different elements. So in that sense, the process of making the constitution became the bridge from the past, the bridge inside me to becoming a judge afterwards. And the judge now to defend the things we've been fighting for. And often I had to declare with my colleagues against the ANC, against Mandela, uh, because what they did was not in keeping with the constitution that the ANC had been the principal part in, in creating. And it wasn't difficult or complex, complicated for me at all, because this was the pinnacle, the epitome of the values and the things we've been fighting for. And we wanted to hold, I in particular, if you like, if anything, I had a special, special incentive to hold my movement, or movement that's been my movement, to account to the highest, highest standard. In terms of my statement, every judgment I write is a lie, that was another whole thing altogether. The lie is that the judgment was written in the way it appears, as though it was so simple and easy, A, B, C, D, E. In fact, once, my, my secretary hid away my draft. He said, Albie, you've done 26 versions. I'm not making another change. 
so the lie is that it was so simple, a tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. In fact, the writing jumped tock-tock, tick-tick, tick-tock-tock all over the place. And that was explained to me by some political scientists at the University of Toronto who said, Albie, it's the difference between the logic of discovery and the logic of justification. And the discovery, it comes to you in the bath, on the bus, in bed, the three Bs. It just comes. It comes as a result of loads and loads of work, but it's click. Justification is the rationalizing. And it's when you get the two connected, that core organizing principle and idea makes sense. It deals with all the profound issues, maybe in a proportional way, maybe in a purely logical classification way. Then you set about the reasoning and the justification. And that took ages and ages and revision after revision. What do you think the purpose of of human rights is? Um, because and and ask that it's a it's a sort of sounds like a bit almost a basic question, but it feels like in in the world today, as maybe as always, we are constantly having to justify and explain why we need these basic values, these these rights that we fought so hard for. Why do you think we need human rights? We need it, I think, in a way that lawyers need it more, more than anybody. The judges need it. And it shouldn't just depend upon the predilections of Albie's a very uh, empathetic person uh, and so on. It should be in the Constitution, it should be in the structure, it should be in the legal education, it should be in the judgments that establish precedent. Uh, this is what it's about. It, it's so humanizing, it's so enriching to, to feel everybody counts, everybody counts. Uh, there's certain forms of basic protection that everybody's entitled to. Uh, democracy is not simply regular elections, important as they are. It's not simply freedom of speech. It's that sense of human interconnectedness that, that, that's so foundational. And of course, for us, in the post-apartheid South Africa, we wouldn't have a country without it. We had to learn to respect the humanity of everybody. Uh, to have law and order without respect for humanity would have been another form of cruelty and, and a kind of, if you like, emotional dispossession. The two had to go together. Uh, and it doesn't mean anarchy. It doesn't mean lack of rules. It doesn't mean lack of predictability. People should know what expected of them and what their conduct should be and, and what gets them into trouble. So you have that, but you understand that and you apply that in ways that are meaningful. And the law is particularly important, not for the rich and powerful. They even, the business people settle most of their problems not going through the law. They settle it directly through mediation or through stronger power. The law is important for the dispossessed, the marginalized, the impoverished, the people who've been kept down, the people who belong to minority faiths and groups and so on. And that's part of the richness and the texture of a society that it, it, it recognizes everybody. And we get very preachy in South Africa, or I get particularly preachy uh, on these different things. But it's not a preachiness in relation to the good society or getting into heaven uh, or saving your soul. Uh, it's a preachiness in overcoming the terrible pain that was inflicted 
the terrible injustices that still exist in our society. And in that sense, it's an existential and a philosophical thing uh, going together at the same time. I'm going to open the question to questions from the floor now, the, the virtual floor. Um, and the first one is from Sarah. She says, you mentioned Mandela's magnanimity, nimity, <laughs> excuse me. Um, yours is remarkable. How did you find the strength to heal without malice? You know, what I found difficult is to explain it. Uh, for me, it's so obvious. It's so much more powerful than being eaten up with anger. It's transcendent. It gives significance and meaning to your life. It explains why you lost an arm. You know, if I was offered my arm back, I would take it now. I'm so used to being in life uh, as, as I am. But it was part parcel. In my case, I was a volunteer in the struggle. I can't complain that the very threats and distress that uh, I anticipated. We used to read stories about political prisoners and surviving torture and so on. So I can't complain. I can't say uh, nature, destiny has been uh, malign and unfair to me, but I can feel joyous and triumphant. And when I discover Mandela saying the same thing, and and what is Sula saying the same thing, and Governor Becky, Winnie Mandela, not quite the same thing, uh, Albertina Susulu saying the same thing, Fatima Mir saying the same thing, then I realize it's part of our culture, and it's a very strong culture, and it's a culture that gave us a nation instead of endless war, of now it's out to enable it to us. So malice to me seems so trivial, so shallow, so empty, compared to that sense of, 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 of transcending what they did to us, not becoming like them, but being motivated by our ideals, our goals, our spirit, our beliefs. It's fantastic. It, it, it's much stronger, it's much more powerful, it's much more resilient than harboring malice. And, and a sense of revenge. Um, David Valence has asked, what do you think about the state of South Africa today? Is it a success or is it suffering from corruption? <laughs> it's a success and it's suffering from corruption. Uh, it, it's a very mixed story. But you know, the strong thing is that our democracy is very strong. Uh, we've, we've had five general elections that are freer and fairer than American elections, uh, with no attempts to suppress the vote. Um, we, we've got a very lively press, wonderful investigative journalists, we've got strong civil society, we've got faith movements that speak out, we've got unions that speak out. We've got, we've got a country, South Africa, that's terrific. Uh, and we have uh, fascinating and Trenchant and interesting art, uh, vocal, dance, uh, conceptual art, uh, uh, terrific museum, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cape Town, if anybody's around to come and see fantastic art from all over Africa. It's a very rich country in, in, in that sense, a very expressive country. And we've got awful things happening. And maybe the brilliant things, the good things are Fantastic and awful things are particularly ugly. Uh, schools without latrines and children dying and in feces. It's unthinkable that something like that could happen. The corruption. People have spent years fighting for freedom, going to jail, and then setting up forms of looting 
when they're in government afterwards. It, it, it's unacceptable, it's terrible, it's horrible. We've got gender-based violence. I don't think it's worse than it was. I think it's just more exposed than it was. But that's still happening in our country. That's unacceptable. You've got huge unemployment, especially amongst the youth. That's unacceptable. But we've got the mechanisms. We've got the democracy. We've got the rights. We've got the instruments for dealing with them. And that's what gives me a lot of hope and a lot of courage. And at the panic, pinnacle, the apex of it all, this constitutional court that we put up in the heart of the old Fort prison, the prison where both Gandhi Mandela and many others were locked up. That's where our beautiful court building is today. And it's doing terrific work. Uh, and it's very respected amongst the people, the, the decisions of the court. And I'm pleased to say uh, somebody from the German Federal Constitution Court said they always look first to our decisions in a whole range of cases. A couple of judges on the European Court of Human Rights say they look to our decisions. We've, instead of being a, a universal importer of ideas from outside, we're becoming a universal donor. The Canadian Supreme Court quoting our decisions on the right to prisons to vote. So, so these are the things that give me optimism and hope for South Africa, not in a way that denies the terrible things that are happening, but in a way that says we've got the instruments for courage and the people to deal with them. Can we talk about Constitutional Hill? Um, could you tell us about your role in it? Yes, partly, you know, when we got democracy, this wonderful constitution, we had a parliament building with slightly new occupants, in fact, overwhelming new occupants in Cape Town. We had the union buildings for the presidency in Pretoria up on the hill, very beautiful buildings put up at the height of the imperial sort of grandeur. But we didn't have a building for the constitutional court. So we couldn't postpone our decisions until we had a building. We had temporary accommodation. And we started looking for a place. And we were taken to many, many different sites. And then we were taken to the old Fort Prison, he commissioned, set up by Paul Kruger in the 1890s because he suspected the British would try and seize the gold field. And the Brits did. So the Boers captured the Brits and locked up the Boers. The Boers, sorry, the Boers captured the Brits and locked up the Brits, the Jamison raid. The Brits then won the Anglo-Boer War, the South African War, locked up the Boers. The Boers won political power, they locked up the Blacks. And our generation said enough already. We must stop locking each other up. We have a constitution. This is the site where we want our court to be. So relevant with our history. It happened to be the highest point in Johannesburg, really accessible, integrated into the city, not a remote court far away. So that's where we built the court. We had an international competition, which was won by a brilliant young architect with a view of justice under a tree. Not a copy of the American Supreme Court, which is a vague copy of an imagined, not quite Greek, not quite German court, but a South African court with a South African feel, but using modern techniques of building with lots of light and visibility and using bricks from one building we had to take down to clad the wall behind where the judges sit, using cowhide skins in front of the judges so that our knees can't be seen. 
a very African feel. And instead of having quotes from the Magna Carta or the blindfolded woman, these rather tired symbols imported, we had our own uh, uh, logo for the court justice under a tree, and it's filled with art donated to us by our artists. And it's not just art put in in nice little nooks and corners. The doors created by artists, the security gates, the carpets, the chandeliers. So it's a brilliant building, a wonderful building, it's a humane building, uh, and a building that happens to also have passive cooling, taking the cool night air and sending it into the building during the day. And it makes such a difference because you have a natural feel. And when it rains, you can hear the rain and you can see the sunlight going through the building. It's not an artificially lit and artificially uh, uh, controlled, uh, temperature controlled building. It's a real building for real people and hopefully for real judges. So I take people on tours. COVID has prevented me from doing that. I live in Cape Town, but it's something I'm looking forward to after we, unfortunately, not vaccinated yet. I'm hoping uh, from the 17th of May to get my vaccination uh, when I can travel more easily and to be able to conduct tours of Constitution Hill, Constitutional Court. Uh, meanwhile, I work on the Constitution Hill Trust, uh, telling some of the stories that I've been telling to you today and to the listeners today, but also about the architecture, uh, about the road of the judges, about the themes we introduced into that space that, that uh, important parcel of the environment in which I function. And I might say that when you got your Supreme Court, one of my greatest delights was to offer to the uh, Lord Chief Justice at that stage, I think, some tips about what can be done to make a court more friendly, uh, more accessible, more warm, more humane, uh, and, and more appropriate for its functions. Yeah, and, and our Supreme Court is the most accessible court in our in our jurisdiction by far and just before we leave constitutional hill can you tell us about about this blue dress that's in the that's in the in in on your on the front of your book and is also in the supreme court that that's um it's not the normal thing you see on a cover of a judicial memoir uh and it's there for a very strong reason uh when the truth commission was was having its hearings one of the stories was about Peter and Dwindre. She was an ANC combatant guerrilla who uh, came from Swaziland, crossed the border into South Africa. She was captured and she was executed. And um, the man who killed her told the story to the Truth Commission and the body was recovered and they discovered it was a nude body except for a little bit of blue plastic covering her private parts. And the story was she'd been stripped naked. She'd refused to testify against the comrades. She was executed. And the man who killed her kind of sniggered and he said, God, she was brave. But at least her body was recovered. Her family learned about her last moments. She was given a dignified burial. Then even Judith Mason, the artist, heard that story and she wanted to do something for what she called my sister. And she got hold of some plastic bags and she sewed them into a dress. And she wrote beautiful words 
on the bottom of the dress, sister, this may not be the whole armor of God, but what they did to you, and, and she went on. Uh, and what you did was take a piece of rubbish uh, and protect yourself. What a housewifely, commonsensical thing to do. And they didn't compound the abuse of you by stripping you a second time. Uh, and, and it was an expression of her love and respect for the people who sacrificed for the freedom in our constitution. Uh, and then she did a painting that went with the dress showing a snarling dog behind some wire with the dress of freedom, as it were, hanging up, dedicated to Peel and Blundway. And the wife of the Chief Justice of the Traskelson, uh, Lorraine, uh, told me, you must go to the exhibition. And that's where I saw it. Uh, I heard the story from, from the artist. And I said, we don't have much money, but we'd love to have that picture in our court. And she said, no, you must take it. I managed to get a little bit of funding. And we hung the dress and the picture. But I also said to Judith, the picture you have is so hard, it's so harsh. And we've got somewhere with our truth commission. Can't you do a softer picture? And she did one showing some burning braziers, uh, coal braziers giving a warmth and a glow with the dog in the background and the dress hanging and I said can we take all three it became like a triptych and it's become the most famous picture installation in our court uh, and people cry when they read the, the, the statement that's written, written on the dress and we feel it belongs there so much that that spirit captured by the artist of, of reverence, if you like, for what went into our constitution. And I was thrilled when, when Oxford University Press suggested putting the picture on uh, the cover of the book. I've got a question here from Raymond Simonson, who is the chief executive of JW3. Um, he asks, as a high-profile South African Jew um, involved in the anti-apartheid movement, do you get asked a in a lot of interviews for your views on Israel? And do you think the and what do you think of the accusations of apartheid, and and if so, how do you feel about the expectation that you should express a clear opinion on this, and how do you respond? So just finishing with a light question, um, a straightforward question. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, I tell you how I respond. I respond by telling a story. In, in the year two thousand. Uh, I'm invited by the Kennedy School of Government to go to Gaza to take part in a conference, a workshop on the rule of law, and I accept. And it's the first time I've been to what I call that part of the world. If, if you give it any more description, you're already taking sides. Uh, and we arrive in, in Tel Aviv, and there's a car from the South African mission in Ramallah, sends a driver to fetch me and, and my wife in the next September. Uh, and it's a Christian Arab who's driving. We go through the checkpoint to Ramallah. Afterwards, spending a couple of days there, through a checkpoint down to Gaza, through another checkpoint. And I see him wincing every time he has to show his documents. It was an extraordinary workshop, lively, spirited, full of argumentation, Somebody saying, I was imprisoned by the Israelis, now I've been imprisoned by the Palestinians, 
somebody else saying that there was a reason for one, not for the other. And in the end, I just spoke about Nelson Mandela. Uh, and in South Africa, we were fighting not just for the state, but for dignity, for human dignity. And what I thought the role of the leader should be. And that was, in a sense, my commentary feeding something in to the Palestinians there, living in a constitutional democracy. I get a message that Yasser Arafat would like to meet you. So we go through the checkpoints again, same wincing. We arrive at that famous compound that you always saw on TV. Uh, and there's Yasser Arafat looking just like Yasser Arafat with his stubble, with the scarf. He comes up to me. He says, this man is a hero. And he kisses me on both cheeks with his stubble. The next morning, I'm in Jerusalem sitting on the bench next to Aran Barak. And I'm thinking, a white South African Jew. I didn't keep my being with the other from either of them. But I have that ability to move from the one to the other. And I understand where Israel comes from, what it means to my cousins, to many others, against the historic persecution of Jews, why it's got so much meaning to have a Jewish state. But I also understand why Palestinians feel oppressed and have their desire to have a state uh, and dignity. And, and my own feeling is, as happened in South Africa, in the end, what's required is a strong Palestinian state, not a weak one, a dignified one. And then the congruence between the two states the shared interest will really come out rather than a subdued uh, state with outward form of statehood but no real spirit of independence. Even yeah, those are my views that I might have a role because of the peculiar history, if you like, that I have in South Africa and as a person to connect up at an appropriate moment the two sides. So I don't answer the question about is Israel an apartheid state? So the great disappointment of many people who support the BDS. I don't answer questions going the other way as well. I don't. So that's my answer. My answer is I don't give an answer. I keep myself available for maybe, maybe, maybe one day. Well, 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 well. I, well, I hope you, I hope that will become a reality. Um, I just want to fin. I, I we're very sadly running out of time. Um, I do have time to ask at least one more question. This is one, hopefully, a bit less controversial than the last one, but one that's close to my heart. Um, and it's from Jason Breyer, who's a, a, a another Jewish barrister, a British Jewish barrister. He says, as an author of one of the exemplar written constitutions, what's your view of the UK's unwritten constitution? If you put the question, should the UK have a written constitution? Strangely enough, I, I, I get a little bit nervous because I'm scared it'll actually be used to cut the UK off from the European Court of Human Rights. Are you still there? Brexit doesn't Cut you out if I'm correct. Yeah, we're, 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 thank goodness we're still hanging on. Right, right. I think that's so important, two ways. What Britain has to contribute to the jurisprudence of it, but also what Britain has to learn, sharing with others, independently of 
the common market aspects and so on. That, 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 that's very much part of your, your own decision. So the, in an earlier time, the push for a Bill of Rights was coming from what I call the progressive, the left forces. Uh, Helena Kennedy was pushing very strongly, and I spoke on behalf of, of, of the Bill of Rights, especially for Northern Ireland, but for the whole of the UK. The push for a written constitution was coming from conservative forces. I don't mean conservative party, because there are lots of very progressive-minded people in the conservative party, but who wanted to keep human rights out of it uh, through having a written constitution. Uh, that's my one response. The other response is a discovery I made when I was just out of hospital, and I got some funding uh, from I was working at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies in West of London, who converted a bathroom into uh, an office for me to work on a new constitution for South Africa. Got money from, from CEDA, the Swedish National Election Agency, Ford Foundation. Brilliant. It turned out I had like 80 months just to work on planning, thinking about a new constitution. Not writing one, but ideas, ideas, ideas. And um, any event, during that time, I decided, let me go to Norway, a country I love, social democratic country, a uh, lot of social awareness, but it's an open society. It's a very free society, multi-party democracy. I'm sure we'll get great support from Norway. I go to Norway and I ask about the constitution. I say, oh yes, yes, we've got a constitution. We never use it, it's not, it's an important historical document and it's connected with our separation from Denmark and Sweden and so on. And then I thought, what's going on here? Something similar in Sweden, uh, in Holland, in the UK. I say to myself, where would I rather be locked up? In London or in Washington? Washington with a constitution, London with an unwritten Constitution. I'd rather be locked up in London. Maybe if I spoke with an Irish accent in those days, or if I had long hair, maybe not. But then it occurred to me that what matters is not so much the Constitution as such, but constitutionalism. And there is constitutionalism in, in Norway and all the countries that kept the monarchy. A slight exception when you beheaded King Charles I, a, a deal was done with the new ruling class, if you like. The monarchy aristocracy was retained, but parliament became supreme. But there were certain understandings about the exercise of power, and sovereignty remained with the sovereign, technically. But once you behead the sovereign, or you break away and create a new country, where's your sovereignty? So the sovereignty has to be replaced with a compact, with an agreement, with some kind of document that keeps the nation in that sense, uh, provides unity to it. I happen to mention what I call my regicide theory of Bill of Rights. That's where Bill of Rights comes in to Princess Anne, when I got an honorary degree at the University of London, and we had dinner afterwards, and she said, oh, I do hope that you get a Bill of Rights through less, less plastic means in the United Kingdom. Uh, so that's my regicide theory of a Bill of Rights. So I don't think regicide is, is on the cards in the United Kingdom now. 
which might require some kind of document of, of that kind. Uh, but I do think mechanisms should be found to entrench certain core fundamental values. Call it a Bill of Rights, uh, call it some kind of supermajority, special procedures are required to amend. Uh, what was done in some other countries was a special convention was called uh, to almost be like a new constitutional body, not just parliament itself. Uh, that was very important in Colombia. Uh, in India, there was a constitutional assembly. We had our parliament acting as a constitutional assembly. Uh, maybe some kind of body like that could be created in the United Kingdom. Otherwise, you get the conundrum if Parliament passes a law requiring a supermajority, another Parliament can come along and say, no, we're sovereign, we're elected by the people, and we're going to disregard that. So you might need some kind of external body, uh, very, very solemn, uh, very, very representative in another kind of a way to create an entrenched Bill of Rights for the UK. I'm... I'm absolutely devastated to say I'm going to have to end there um, but Albie it's been a, a great honour for me to talk to you and, and, and an inspiring hour and a half I'm sure for everybody watching thank you again to JW3 and to the Genesis Philanthropy Group and most of all thank you to you sorry just before you change I was hoping for a chance to tell you and I'm going to tell you very quickly now uh, Guggenheim friends of Guggenheim are visiting Cape Town Johannesburg in about 1996, we've just got a new constitution called. I'm asked to speak to them about the changes in South Africa. And I'm speaking to them about it's amazing how we got transformation without the bloodshed and violence, black and white working together. And the head of the Guggenheim says, it's a miracle. It's a miracle, she says. Three Jews on the constitutional court. <laughs> Arthur Jaskelson, uh, uh, Gosh, um, my first friend, um, uh, myself, and, 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 gosh, he got into trouble with the report he gave on, on Gaza. Uh, Richard Goldstone. Goldstone, Richard Goldstone, my close and wonderful friend, Richard Goldstone, happened to be the Constitution Court. And it wasn't pure accident coming from our backgrounds and being supportive of the resistance and change at a time when the bar was overwhelmingly white and the judges moving up were overwhelmingly white, that three out of the first 11 judges happened to be Jews. Well, Albie, I, I, I've got to finish by saying, you, you you may not know this, but Lady Hale, who has just finished as the, uh, as the first female president of our Supreme Court justice, was also a pathbreaker. She was the first non-Jewish president of the UK Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> because the first two, Lord Phillips and Lord Newberger, were Jewish. So um, for a country of 250,000 odd Jews, it's pretty impressive. Um, something going on there. Thank you very much to JW3 and the Genesis Philanthropy Group for allowing me to repost this conversation with Albie Sachs. I hope you found it as inspiring and interesting as I did. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law in their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. 
Studying law at Goldsmiths means you'll gain problem-solving, debating and advocacy skills through a range of experiential learning, extracurricular and professional development activities, including participation in the Refugee Law Clinic at the University of London and Goldsmiths Law and Policy Clinics that cover areas as diverse as financial wrongdoing, immigration and counter-terrorism. If you want to support this podcast and help make it sustainable, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com and please also leave a review, hopefully a positive one, where you listen to your podcast. So thank you very much. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. Goodbye.